Hello, and welcome to Modus Scotus, the podcast that talks about anything and everything having to do with the Supreme Court. I'm Bill Kehoe. And I'm Venetia Hurtabies. And we've got some fun cases, the first couple cases from the new term. It's exciting. They're back in session, in court, physically there, except for Cav, but, you know, we'll get there. So we've got two cases, uh, U.S. v. Wooden, or is it Wooden v. U.S.? I forget. We'll, we'll get into that. And then uh, U.S. v. Zubadaya. And I'm going to butcher that pronunciation several times, just as the Chief Justice did when he introduced the case. But, oh, well. Uh, so, but first, we've got a bit of news. So, Venetia, what's, like, my favorite thing to talk about that I never shut up about? The First Amendment, Section 230. Yeah, that's right. Can you <laughs> believe that I have another news piece that's about Section 230? Yes, I can. Oh, great. Okay. So it's kind of about 2.30, but it's on the it's on the edges. So you may have seen in the um, – in the was it in the Washington Post? No, it was in the Wall Street Journal like a couple months ago. And then it recently came out on 60 Minutes. There's a Facebook whistleblower that kind of shed some light on some of Facebook's practices as far as data and how they make their money. So they have – Facebook has data – that suggests that they target minors pretty heavily. Minors are a big part of their business and that they knew that use of their products, including Instagram, uh, contributed greatly to these, especially young women. Uh, they have an increased uh, rate of contemplating suicide, right? So it's, it's they have data that suggests that it's going to raise the suicide rate amongst minors and it's and they continued to do what they were doing even though they knew that was going to happen. So this is actually one of the first times that I've seen bipartisan support for modifying Section 230, but in the same direction, right? So in, in the past, it was always like, well, conservatives want to modify 230 to uh, protect or prevent censorship. Democrats were more in the lines of modifying it to prevent hate speech or misinformation. This is much more along the, okay, is could... Congress modify 230 to allow for a uh, private right of action for like the parents of kids who commit suicide where one of the mitigating factors or one of one of the factors contributing to that minors different state of mind is Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. Right. So that actually could happen. Um, it's not I guess it's something we should have expected because I think we all kind of knew of the massive impact social media has on minors. So we'll we'll have to keep an eye out for um, some of these Section 230 potential modifications. But, yep, if you want to go check it out, her name is Frances Haugen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but she was, a, she was one of the top da- data scientists at Facebook. And now she's spilling her guts, telling, telling them all about... Uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, ambivalence to the Zuckiness. issue. What? His zuckiness. His yes, his zuckiness. <laughs> You're so punny. Other than that, I mean, Kavanaugh's still home. Like I said, he's got the COVID, but he's still home, so he's dialing into his uh, uh, to his supreme arguments. So we're gonna start with that first one. Well, before we do, oh, before we jump oh, into excuse it. me. Uh, I was going to run through just all of the cases that took place this past week. Uh, So the Supreme Court heard on October 4th 
Mississippi versus Tennessee, Wooden versus United States. On the 5th, they heard Brown versus Davenport, which, uh, interesting side note, the Michigan Solicitor General, Fadwa Hamoud, arguing on behalf of Michigan, was the first Arab-American Muslim woman to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court. So congratulations to her. Uh, and Hemphill versus New York. Then on the 6th, they heard United States versus Zubeda, which, yes, the Chief Justice called Zubaydu, <laughs> which reminded me of <laughs> Scooby Dooby Doo. Which was funny, right? Uh, but the advocate on behalf of Zubeda pronounces it Zubeda, so I'll be pronouncing it Zubeda. Right. And which is kind of funny because that's kind of the premise of Zubeda is Zooby Dooby Doo, where were you? That is exactly Where was the your case. CIA black site? But we'll get there. I wonder if that's why he pronounced it that way. <laughs> the chief making another funny. Um, but also, what did you think of, so they're in person now, what did you think of the structure of the arguments? Did you notice anything? Yes. So Clarence Thomas is always, he's always got the first question, and then they bounce, they modify it, but it's almost like a modified version of the Zoom stuff. Clarence gets the first question, excuse me, Justice Thomas, then they kind of bounce back and forth a lot like they were um, on the Zoom calls. And then they kind of end it with the, hey, are you good? You good? You good? You good? Okay, we're good. Next um, you know, case submitted. Um, and But they, the other thing is they kept that like two, three-minute spiel in the beginning. It was like, I, I welcome the court's questions, and then they go into it. So I like the modified version. What do you Me think? Me too. Yeah, no, I like it a lot. I was happy that the advocates are sticking with, and I don't know if this is something the court told them to do or if they're just in the mindset or I, I don't know if it's a new rule that they have to present like this, but I do like that they're keeping their spiel to a two-minute sum, summation of what their argument is, and then they say, okay, what are your questions? But it is interesting. I looked at every single one of those cases, and in every case, Justice Thomas asked the first question. So I don't know, mm -hmm. again, if that's a habit or if the new procedure is going to be. No, because then it should have been Chief Justice Roberts to ask the first question because he is the senior. The most um, senior. Yeah. Right. But yeah, Thomas, he just goes in with the first question in every single case. Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because he used to not ask a single question and now he's guaranteed to ask questions from every advocate in every case. I don't know if he's just in the habit or if that's their new process, but it has been interesting. I like the new setup. Yeah, I think I think it's good. It brings a lot of the stuff that we liked from the Zoom world and leaves that, you know, that back and forth. And they, the one thing I think they're, they're going to struggle with is interrupting each other is they they were, they were always interrupting the uh, the advocate that was always kind of part of it but i saw them interrupting themselves a lot more because they're not used to being in the same room with each other yeah but i mean they they've done in that in the past as well where oh, sure. if they don't agree with your question or if they want to have the question phrased in a different way they'll interrupt each other more frequently um so I think that'll be common practice again. Um, but yes, yeah, some other slight changes since COVID, they were all in person, but they 
limited the people who were allowed in the courthouse on the, those days. So it wasn't open to anyone to come in. They had very select people who were allowed to be there, mostly the justices' spouses. Obviously, the uh, advocates on each side were allowed to be in there. And uh, Justice Kennedy was actually there. Oh. First week of arguments. I don't know if he was there the whole week or if he was just there on the first day, but I thought that was interesting. And then Justice Sotomayor wore a mask the whole time. I don't know if you knew that. I think I did know and that, yeah. obviously, Kavanaugh was at home because he was uh, he tested positive for COVID-19 the previous week. Right. I think I did know that Sotomayor wore a mask. Yep. So, nice little hybrid system. Sort of getting back into the norm, but a little bit uh, different. We'll see how it continues to go. Mm-hmm. All right. So are we ready to get into wooden? Yes. Go ahead. I'm allowed to now? Okay, good. All right. So, wooden v. U.S. This is a... You want to go over the facts, or you want to just give it the general premise of the case? Sure. So... In 1997, William Wooden, he broke into a storage facility in Georgia and stole from 10 different units. So one facility, 10 units, all on the same night. Each uh, unit that he broke into and stole stuff from counted as a burglary. He got 10 counts of burglary. Uh, He pled guilty to all the charges, and in 2014, A plainclothes officer, undercover, I guess you could also say, uh, went into Wooden's home where he witnessed Wooden uh, in possession of a rifle, which he was not allowed to have. Uh, Wooden was arrested and charged in state court with being a felon possession of a firearm, obviously a bad thing. Uh, But the case was dismissed when the district attorney noted that there was no probable cause for Wooden's arrest because he kind of just wandered in there. Uh, But Wooden was subsequently charged subsequently, subsequently charged by federal indictment with being a felon in possession of a firearm and ammunition in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 922. Uh, And after Wooden was found guilty, the district court found during his sentencing hearing that Wooden qualified as an armed career criminal based on his conviction of the 10 counts of burglary. So they sentenced him to 15 years imprisonment The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit affirmed finding that Wooden's prior burglaries were separate from each other. So each one of those 10 burglaries was separate, even though they were all part of a single night. So the question before the Supreme Court is whether or not the offense is committed as part of a single criminal spree, but sequentially in time are, quote, committed on occasions different from one another, end quote, for purposes of a sentencing enhancement under the Armed Career Criminal Act. Yeah. So that's everything before the court. Yes. So the key statute, this is a statutory interpretation case, right? This is a, if if you fall into this category, you're there's going to be a mandatory minimum of 15 years. So the, the relevant statute there is, I think you mentioned the, the first one he was convicted under, um, 922G, which is kind of the if we find you in possession of guns, you're guilty. Uh, and then there's a 922, uh, 924, 18 USC 924E says, hey, if we get you under that guns thing, um, let's see, it says um, 
in the case of a person who violates the, the gun thing and has three previous convictions by any court referred to in the, that section for a violent felony or a serious drug offense or both committed on occasions different from one another, such person shall be fined under this title and imprisoned not less than 15 years. So that the the key phrase that the court's going to be analyzing throughout is committed on occasions different from one another. And the advocate in favor of Wooden is going to argue that committed on occasions, we should look at that as a how would the what's the plain meaning of that? What what would an ordinary person think that is mean by uh, means by that? And the government's going to say, well, committed on occasions different. That's going to more refer to the actual uh, the charge. Right. Which like um, so there were 10 separate burglaries within that storage unit. They're going to say, hey, each one of those was an occasion different from another. And that's the that's the big fight. So, Venetia, what were your favorite parts of the oral argument? Uh, how confused everyone was. <laughs> oh, at both cases. And we'll get into Zuby Doo later. But both cases, everybody was very confused about what the heck was going on. Right. Um, the argument that the advocate, I guess I'll call, the advocate for the United States uh, defending the statute is making is that, again, it's based on the elements of the charge. So if it has all of the elements of the charge, it's its own occasion. So again, for this case specifically, each one of those burglaries in the 10 units was its own occasion, as opposed to if the elements um, subsume one another or take place all around the, the same criminal activity, then it would be a single occasion. So they're looking at this other case. Do you remember the name of the other case? Petty v. U.S. from, from, yeah, and that's the one where I think it's a burglary, but it's it's uh, done to all separate people, or it's a robbery, excuse me, but it's done uh, with the threat of force against all three of them in concert, or the multiple people in concert, right? Whereas this is different, right? There's no threat of, there's no unifying threat of force against these 10 units that were burglarized, right? It's just a separate burglary onto, uh, into the, this person's property, this other person's property. So the, the government's argument is there's no common element amongst that because um, it's just, diff- you know, it's you're doing the crime against 10 different people. But and completely and completely unrelated. The only thing that's related is that there is that their geographic location is close to each other. And that it's all taking place sequentially in time because it's difficult because. Um, and so I think Gorsuch got really sassy with the advocate and i thought it was pretty funny what if instead of in petty instead of robberies we had murders and a guy breaks in and shoots three people in a row is that three separate occasions on the government's view yes each of those offenses requires a different use of force so the exact same so so a normal person wouldn't say that happened on one occasion even though the three people were in the same room but because they were murdered sequentially, that's not one occasion. That's three occasions. I think in the context of this statute, that is one. Those are three occasions. But if they commit robbery one after the other in the same room, that is one occasion. No, Your Honor, because the robberies. So it might be true. And because I the robbery starts as soon as he sh- uh, shows his weapon to everybody in the room. And therefore, it's one occasion when it's robbery. 
Yes. Right? But three occasions when it's murder. I think that is simply a consequence of the elements of Who robbery. Who thinks that, Ms. Ross, in the real world? So, Your Honor, again, I think that um, there are multiple ways in which one could look at the way that we ah, apply the act. And if there are multiple ways say, to look at it, why doesn't lenity play an important role here? That was the part I was thinking of. So he makes it a point to clarify. So in the Petty case, it was robbery. Walked in, brandished a gun, and was like, everyone, empty your pockets. This is a stick-up. I'm going to steal all your stuff. So then he goes to each person. He steals all their stuff. Supreme Court says that's one occasion. So Gorsuch is like, all right, well, let's change the facts. He goes in there and he murders three people during, you know, while he's in there and all those people are in there. Now this is three separate criminal occasions. Yeah. Or is this or is this just a triple homicide on one occasion? Right. So, yeah. How, how do you how would a normal person interpret that? How would a regular just laymen on the street interpret those two activities. Why would they think that the robbery is one occasion, but killing three people in one place during the same sort of scenario is three separate occasions? And that's why he's like, "When well, who thinks that? Who yeah. who are you?" <laughs> uh, I that was sassy, but, but I did like that he brought up uh, the rule of lenity, which yes, is always near and dear to my heart because I'm a bleeding heart. Um, but essentially, if the if it's so confusing that even regular people, even people in the court can't really understand how to parse it out, shouldn't it go in favor of the criminal defendant who is being charged with something that a regular layman couldn't understand in the first place? Right. And that, that is instead for those of our listeners that don't know what the rule of lenity is. That is that is the rule. If there's ambiguity go in favor of the de- of the criminal defendant because our laws are confusing. Yeah. So, um I'm I'm glad that he brought this up multiple times to both um advocates because I I see his argument here. It's like this this I, I when I read the statute as the plain language to me says that it's you know, these are not separate occasions. This is one occasion, right? But with the pr- presentation of the other argument, Okay, maybe there are multiple readings of it. Yeah, maybe lenity, if this court is having a hard time with it, why don't we just dispose of it with lenity? And boom, done. Um, but pretty interesting. Um, I liked, um, they all loved the uh, the mugging at night under no moonlight hypothetical. The moonless night. The moonless yep. night. And Roberts was uh, all, I think Roberts was a little sad that he didn't get to finish his line of questioning. He's like, I want to go back to the dark night. uh but again it's like the it it, what's what's kicking off that criminal occasion and at first it was like the street light goes out and oh look it's dark i can mug people what about the moonless night is that still the same occasion it's like they're very confused about where these lines are and i liked um i forgot the uh, the advocate for wooden's name um but he basically said hey this statute is written inherently in a qualitative way this is like I understand that you want to draw a line here, but it's meant to be a qualitative test. It's meant to be a totality of the circumstances type of test, because that's the that's the test that avoids the situation of petty being, you know, three or four or multiple occasions versus one occasion. Right, and the moonless night for Wooden, it's Alan Kadim is the advocate's name. 
And those hypotheticals got very confusing as well because he's trying to advocate for the burglaries being a single occasion. Broke into one storage facility with the intent of burglarizing many units inside of the storage facility, and that's Mm -hmm. what he did. That's one occasion with 12 burglaries, uh, or 10 burglaries. So the moonless night hypotheticals that Chief Justice Roberts brought up were, okay, so it's a moonless night. It's pitch black out, can't see stuff. A criminal decides this is a perfect um, environment to commit several crimes. So on this one night, he lays in wait and he essentially robs anyone who walks by him. You know, if it's happening all throughout the night, starting at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and then going all the way through 1 a.m., are each one of those a separate occasion or are they a single occasion? And based on the amount of detail and facts that the chief gives the advocate, uh, he has to argue that it's it's one occasion. He took the opportunity, he took advantage of the moonless night opportunity to commit several crimes, but all on one occasion, one criminal spree. So, but those can be difficult because let's say he mugs a guy and then he steals a car and then he slashes some other person's tires and like they're all separate types of offenses. Is that still just one occasion? The advocate says yes. The state, obviously, the petitioner for the United States is saying, no, those are all separate occasions because of the elements of each offense are clearly different. So who do you agree with more? I think I've already given given that up. I'm with Wooden on this one. What about you? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think one of the things that would make the elements argument very difficult is each statute has its own elements and so the judge is still going to be in charge of parsing out which one of these elements correlates to each one of the criminal offenses that took place on that same night and then is there a time frame that it matters like if it took place between one night into the next day do i still have to look at the elements or now is it two separate offenses on its face um it's still going to be ambiguous enough that I think just looking at the totality of the circumstances is essentially going to give you the same outcome in the end, but not require you to do such a rigorous... Um, Almost like a Venn diagram type analysis of seeing where do these overlap, what what's going on, are these truly the same occasion because of the elements? Right, as opposed to just looking at all of the facts in front of you of what happened and then determining, okay this seems like a single event that had several crimes in in play at once yeah and i generally am cautious of decisions that give a lot of power to the judiciary right this if if they uh, cited in favor of totality of the circumstances test that's basically making all these judges like, oh, was this the same occasion? They're not equipped to say this is the same occasion or not. Not really. It's not. That's kind of the risk. That's like the devil's advocate of it. But that's what the statute says. Well, I think right. What's the statutory interpretation? They, yeah, I think their legislature wrote it that way so that a you would think and hope common man would interpret it one way. It should be interpreted that way then. Right. It's just again, it, it leaves a lot of interpret. It leaves each circumstance up to the interpretation of the judge that's deciding right so it's definitely it increases judicial power to decide that way and i think that's why gorsuch was leaning towards that rule of lenity argument 
saying, hey, we don't have to decide anything. If there's two different interpretations, we can decide on lenity because we have that tool in our toolkit. And I don't even have to decide if this is, you know, one occasion or not. I There's a rule that says I do find this to be only one occasion because that's the rule. And there you go. Um, and I think that's why he, he did that because he's, you know, I don't, I don't think he's, I think he's more in the, in the limited role of the court. Generally, generally speaking, that's kind of where his judicial philosophy is. But I think that the statutory construction more clearly aligns with Wooden's interpretation. Yeah, I agree. Because no common person would assume breaking into one facility and then stealing from 10 different units at the same time are 10 separate occasions. No, the, the whole thing's called the Armed Career Criminal Act. And you, uh, one night, all of a sudden, one night, you're a career criminal. Right. That just doesn't make any sense. I wish I could make a career after off of doing something once. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm a career, like, I don't know, espresso drinker. Like, I don't know. That's stupid because I drink espresso a lot. I was going to say, like, a career First Amendment know. lawyer because you wrote one paper about the First Amendment. That Yes. That's actually, that's that's much better. I'm a career First Amendment lawyer because I, yes, because I put one paper up. Uh, without affiliation on SSR. That had, you know, 40 different pages. So technically, <laughs> I'm a, it's a career. I'm a career First Amendment writer because of, <laughs> of each 40 pages, yeah. But do you think any of the justices are going to vote with the U.S.? Um, no. My gut instinct is that Wooden is going to win this case uh, and it's going to be unanimous. I think so. And I think we're going to get a Gorsuch a Gorsuch plus a couple others concurrence are discussing lenity. You don't think he's going to write it? No, I think Kagan might write it, or or Breyer, so that he can talk about Jesse James on the train from all the movies he's watched. Oh my goodness! Yeah, his hypotheticals got overboard. He even had to apologize and be like, "I'm sorry. I I think I'm getting like, too wrapped up in my own hypothetical. I'm getting a little off base." Yeah. <laughs> And, and so what you're saying is that uh, Jesse James, who I know what he did because I've seen movies. All right. So Jesse James gets on the train and he goes to one person and then the next person and then the next person and takes their stuff. You know, he takes and the next stuff. car and the next car. Yeah, and the next correct. Car. Correct. And moreover, you're going to put him in jail for 15 years or maybe he deserves it. But his cousin, Harry James, only robbed one car in one train once. But there were four people on it, and then he gave up his life of crime. And you're saying not just Harry, but also, not just Jesse, but Harry, too, will spend 15 years in jail extra. Uh, if you can convince me Congress intended that at the same time uh, that they passed this, uh, uh, the sentencing guidelines, I'd, I'd like to hear it. Sure. So, so two responses, Your Honor. The first to those particular hypotheticals. I think this points up a, a problem in any time you're looking at past uh, convictions. And so I think what is going to happen is if all you have is Your Honor's example of the indictment that says robbery X state, we're just going to lose that case. We're Why? Going, Why because, are you going to lose it? Because we don't think that you go beyond uh, basically the basic facts, the core elements of the offense. Oh, he said this is one. But this actually says, you know, you see the indictment and maybe you see that. Maybe it says there were 10 people. It says five people. It lists the things stolen. Joe Smith's watch, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, again, we're not going to know whether it was a petty situation where they just had, 
held up their gun all at once or whether they went person by person. And so we're going to lose that case. Why? The second point. Why? Because Most robberies where you'd go through the train, you would assume it's just train robbery. <laughs> you would assume that the guy in car two didn't see a gun in car one. He just saw a guy with a mask. Uh, so I'm not quite sure if I'm following um, why that would be it. I'm going off too far. Uh, but, Go ahead. <laughs> but yeah, I tend to agree. Unanimous in the actual vote of who is in favor of what. I just think there might be some, if Gorsuch doesn't write it, he might write a, uh, a concurrence that involves a discussion of lenity. Could be. You don't agree? All right. Well, that's all I have to say about that. I don't know. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Seems plausible. He brought it up several times. I don't know. I think it depends on how the actual opinion comes out. They might all decide that lenity just makes the most sense. It's true. But that's also all I had for this one, too. All right, then. We will take a quick break, and then we will get into trivia. Excellent. And we're back. And we're back. So, Bill, do you know how many chief justices there have been since the inception of the Supreme Court? 100. I don't know. Um, no, I don't. Do I have to guess? You can't even make a guess? Yes, you always have to guess. 139. Chief, chief, chief. Oh, chief? Yes. 130, no, uh, like 64. Chief justices from 1789 until today. Well, there's 44 presidents, so like 64 chief justices doesn't sound so crazy. But the chief justice lasts longer than the president does. They used to. Okay, fine. How about 33? 17. There's only been 17 chief justices? I should know this. Yes, yes, you probably should. You know basically every single court, so I assumed that you would just deduce. Oh, yeah, and there's only been like, yeah, yeah, and I, I, that was a poor performance on my part. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. Do you know what the role of the chief justice is? To be badass. No, um, he's like the chief administrator. He's like the, he's like the CEO, COO of the court. So he sets, you know, certain procedural rules, sets the... Uh, does he set the calendar? Um, he obviously is the host. He's like the uh, he uh, administers the oral arguments. He administers the, the um, oh gosh, I almost called it a caucus meeting, but the um, it's not. A, oh, why is that word escaping me now too? The the uh, when they go into closed doors chambers to discuss the cases in chambers. Sure. There's another word for it, but yes, he's, he administrates that. There's other stuff, but that's what I remember. All right, that's pretty good. Does he have any special voting rights on cases? Not as far as the weight of his vote, but I believe he votes first. Good. Yeah, so the Chief Justice is the highest-ranking officer of the U.S. federal judiciary, technically, 
Um, but that sounds a lot fancier than the job actually is. So Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution grants plenary power to the President of the United States to nominate and with the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate appoint judges of the Supreme Court who serve until they resign, retire, are impeached and convicted or die. However, Article 2 and Article 3 do not even mention a chief justice or any other form of higher ranking judge of the Supreme Court. They just say the president gets to nominate judges of the Supreme Court. So the role of the chief justice actually comes out of Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6, which states, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. So the only time a Chief Justice is mentioned in the U.S. Constitution is through this one little part discussing impeachments of the President. And that's where mm -hmm. this new role was created. Um, so the Chief Justice doesn't have any other constitutionally mandated duties. Most of the other duties have been established through statute or custom, uh, through all of the acts that come through each time they nominate a new justice, stuff like that. So the majority of the chiefly duties involve procedural matters that you already ran through. So basically keeping the or oral arguments timely, leading the discussions for upcoming opinions, and being the general point person for the court. Uh, really, like you said, the CEO or COO, I said they're kind of like a department manager. They're the person that you get to blame when the department messes up and they get to take all the glory when the department does something that people enjoy. Uh, but the chief uh, has no actual special power over the associate justices. Um, when it comes to voting, they don't get a greater vote for any of the cases, but they are in their position the most senior justice, no matter how long they've been there for. Um, and so they do get to choose who writes the opinion if they're in the majority, uh, and they do get to you know vote first, like you said, on cases and stuff like that. So that means that if he's in the majority, he can pick himself to write the opinion if he really liked the case. But that's about it. So there have been 17 justices, uh, chief justices. John Jay was the first. Not 139. Not 139. So John Jay was the first. John Rutledge, Oliver Ellsworth, John Marshall, Roger Taney. Tawny. Tawny. I can't even say his name every time I mess it up. Salmon P. Chase. Morris Waite, Melville Fuller, Edward Douglas White, William Howard Taft, Charles Evans Hughes, Harlan F. Stone, Fred M. Vinson, Earl Warren, Warren E. Berger, William Rehnquist, and now John Roberts, who started in 2005 and is still our Chief Justice today. So if you want to learn more about Chief Justices and what they do in some of the important ones in our history you can go to our website there will be a blog post about it and check out some more information about the chief justice i'll have to go read that because i thought there were 139 chief justices yeah you clearly need to do your homework Ooh. all right so that'll bring us to our next case 
So this one is United States versus Zubeda, or as Chief Justice Roberts says, Zubedu. Zubedu. So you want to go through the facts on this one? Sure. All right. So Zubedu, uh, Zubeda, is a he's a former associate of Osama, uh, associate of Osama bin Laden. So they captured U.S. forces captured him in Pakistan. And he eventually made his way to Guantanamo Bay. Um, somewhere along the way, he ended up in what they refer to as a CIA dark site for enhanced interrogation, i.e. torture. This is all during the America's War on Terror, and the policies around enhanced interrogation and torture were different, and they evolved over time, so not a lot of this came as a shock. But there's a Polish investigation going on right now. And um, Zubeda intervened in a Polish criminal investigation into the CIA's conduct in Poland. So there is there's a pending discovery request uh, in reference to this Polish criminal investigation. So some of this information is declassified and some of it is still classified for, under the state secrets privilege for reasons of national security. So... Um, on a, they basically said we don't want to. There's some things we're just not going to disclose through discovery. So uh, the Ninth Circuit rejected the government's assertion of the state secrets privilege, uh, and used its own assessment to uh, and balanced national security versus the harms of discovery and all that, um, and uh, disallowed the use of the state secrets privilege. So the question before the Supreme Court is whether the Ninth Circuit erred in rejecting the assertion of the state's secret privilege to withhold certain discoverable material. So, the justices in this case are anything but clear on what they're trying to discover. Yeah, that was the, the common theme throughout the entire argument was what exactly are you looking for and what exactly are you trying to keep privileged? So for the the advocate for the United States, the justices just keep harassing him on, like, what are you protecting? <laughs> and then the advocate for Zubeda, they keep arguing, what what do you want at this point? It seems like you have basically all of the information that you need. I don't understand what it is that you want the United States to say. And then that got a little bit muddled too because the advocate for Zubeda keeps stating that they don't want the U.S. necessarily to say anything. They're just looking for them to make information available that currently they are not making available. And mostly it revolves around the location of the dark site where the torture took place. Right. And they they want someone to testify. They're like, oh, okay, well, then what are you going to testify about? They're like, well... They're going to testify about the location? Oh, no, that's we don't need that. Oh, well, then what are you going to have them testify about what happened there? Like, yeah. I was like, well, then why don't you ask Zubeda? And they're like, well, we can't talk to him right now. And then there's a fight about that. And it got really interesting at the end because um, right before um, Attorney Fletcher's uh, rebuttal, Gorsuch started going after him. And questioning him, well, why can't can't we just talk to them? Like, like we can test, we you can have him testify and tell and have him say everything that happened. Why won't we just do that? Yeah, you ruined the uh, the ending. That was the most interesting part of the whole argument. 
yeah, I was asleep for most of it. And then it, like, it got to the rebuttal and then things got really interesting. Okay, I think Kagan, based on my notes, did the best job of solving the perpetual question of what is it that you actually want from the United States uh, to make no longer confidential. Mr. Klein, I I may just not be understanding this, but um, when you say it's not a secret, uh, I mean, there are several things that aren't secrets. There's uh, plenty of evidence that the petitioner was tortured in some location. Um, But is there, in fact, evidence that he was tortured in the Mm -hmm. dates that you are trying to establish that he was tortured in? In other words, I thought that the Senate report actually talks a good deal about the petitioner's, uh, uh, the, the torture that was, uh, that the petitioner was subject to, but in an earlier date. And what you need uh, to continue on with this investigation is essentially um, some evidence that that treatment was continued at a later date, the date in which you say he was in Poland. And that is not in the public record. Am I right about that? Um, you're basically right about that, yes. So, right, there's, and I kind of appreciated the United States uh, advocates' argument that there's like a mosaic happening here. And so certain things are privileged and certain things are not privileged. And what Zubeda is looking for are enough mosaic pieces to create a picture of what happened. But in order to do that, he's essentially going to be creating the information that is currently privileged by piecing together all of these other things that maybe are not so privileged or by getting towing up to the line as closely as possible. Um, So that at least registered with me as something I could see in my head. Uh, But I think finally, at the end of the argument, Kagan came to that conclusion of, all right, so essentially, everyone knows he was in Poland. Everyone knows he was tortured. You are specifically looking for information that links Mm -hmm. these dates to him being in Poland, being tortured, because those are not on public record. And so that's essentially what he's looking for, is what it seems like, because no one can actually say what it is he's looking for. <laughs> um, but it seems like that's what it comes down to, is they need specific information that puts Zubeda in Poland on this day being tortured. Because right now they know he's in Poland, or was in Poland, they know he was tortured, but they're trying to really nail down the exact time, place, and event all in one succinct little piece of information. And that's what they don't have. Yeah. And I wonder why they're trying to keep it classified, right? It must be something to do with the dates in which they were doing the supposed torture and, you know, the legality during those dates, or if there's an agreement or all that stuff, um, it could look bad for our government if we were doing something that, you know, wasn't necessarily approved in a time when we weren't supposed to be doing it. Well, well. so the, the government is arguing that they're trying to protect information that would uh, you know, be a breach of trust between the U.S. and international covert intelligence partnerships. And I think once they nail down 
the date, the location, and the torture, it'll be easier to link people. So, um, you know, international partners of the CIA who are supposed to be essentially undercover and protected by the US, they'll be able to be like, it has to be you because it was this day, this place, this activity, you're the only person who could be associated with that. And so in Poland, those people are going to get in trouble because it's a criminal conviction going on over there. And so the US is trying to prevent that from happening. So as much information as they can keep protected in order to protect the identity of those people, I think is what they're trying to do. Okay, that makes sense. Which makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense to me. And, you know, the biggest question here before the court has nothing to do with, you know, the information specifically. It's whether or not the Ninth Circuit was wrong in basically over overruling the federal government's uh, assessment of what should and should not be considered privilege. And that's that's like a tough one because you want to be able to trust the federal government in their duty to determine when information needs to be private and when it can be public. Uh, But it is the court's job to keep them in check. Mm -hmm. But like, it's so tough for a court to do that when they don't even really know what the information is or what it's going to lead to. I mean, even this questioning here makes it very clear that no one really understands this information and how it's going to be helpful and how it's going to be harmful because a lot of things are secret and so if you don't even understand what the harm is going to be how can you really say that it's okay to give away this information right and i think they they described this huge deference to the government's uh, you know their their assessment of what is classified and what is not you just need a very strong reason to get through that classification and they were searching for it, and I don't think they found it. Yeah. Um, but like you mentioned, the end of the argument took a huge twist where all of a sudden nothing even mattered about the question before them. Gorsuch just went at him. And I've never even seen this before where typically the justices will give the advocate a chance to do their rebuttal to even if it's just a short little where they try to go into what exactly they want to address in the end uh gorsuch didn't even let that happen he jumped on him immediately rebuttal rebuttal uh, counsel thank you mr chief justice mr fletcher i don't want to interrupt you later so i'm just going to do it up front um why not make the witness available what is the government's objection to the witness testifying to his own treatment and not requiring any admission from the government of any kind? By the witness, you mean Abu Zubaydah? Right. So I, I was going to address this point. It goes to Justice Breyer's question about the conditions of his confinement right now. He is not being held incommunicado. He is subject to the same restrictions that apply to other similar detainees at Guantanamo. His communications are subject to security screening for classified information and other security risks. But he's able to communicate with his lawyers about his habeas. That's not really answering my question, I, I don't think, because I understand there are all sorts of protocols that may or may not in the government's view, uh, prohibit him from testifying. But I'm I'm asking much more directly, will the government make the petitioner available to testify on this subject? 
we would allow him to communicate about this subject under the same terms as on anything else. The same terms. Look, I don't understand why he's still there after 14 years. It's a little hard to give him Hamdi. Uh, but assuming that isn't in this case, uh, why not do just what Justice Gorsuch says? Just say, hey, you want to ask what happened? Ask him what happened. And maybe this is special. So the, because the detainees at Guantanamo are all subject to a regime, a protective order in their hands. I'm not ways. asking. I understand there are all sorts of rules and protective orders. I'm aware of that. I'm asking much more directly. And I, I just really appreciate a straight answer to this. Will the government make petitioner available to testify as to his treatment during these dates? I cannot offer that now because that's a request that has not been made. And so we have not taken that back to the folks at DOD. Well, gosh, this case has been litigated for years and all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And you haven't considered whether that's an off-ramp that, that the government could provide that would obviate the need for any of this? Well, Justice Gorsuch, we considered the request that was put before the district court in the Ninth Circuit under Section 1782. Our position as to all communications by Abu Zubaydah is that he can communicate subject to security screening, which would include, and I, I just want to be clear, would include eliminating classified information. Which, so, which takes us right back to where we are. And, I, that, and, and it doesn't answer the question. And I, I guess will the government at least commit to answering uh, informing this court whether it will or will not allow the petitioner to testify as to as to his treatment during these dates. If, if the court would like a direct answer to that question, of course. I personally would appreciate a direct answer to that question. Yeah, and, and after that, even uh, Justice Sotomayor jumps in as well. Everyone just keeps hounding on the advocate to really just, why can't we just let Zubeda testify for himself? Like, why do we even need to go through all of these hoops? find this information, decide whether or not it should be privileged. Why can't he just testify in his own trial as to what happened to him on those dates in that place? <laughs> right. Duh. But, yeah, they... Yeah. <laughs> and I thought um, Fletcher handled himself pretty well because he knows he can't commit to anything during oral argument. And I would I don't think he was, he was expecting this line of questioning. But he's like, we can get your response on that, guys. I, not at, li- not at liberty to discuss everything, but I will get you an answer to that question. <laughs> Just funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that he uh, didn't have an official answer that he was allowed to say at this time. Mm-hmm. But you know, again, anyone when you have a detainee in Guantanamo Bay and you're in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, it's going to come up. I would just think, like, you have to be prepared for them to be like, <laughs> look, about this area and this this mystical prison that we essentially can't touch and do anything about outside of Hamdi, which was as close as we got. Um, we have some concerns. Why can't this person, you know, exercise his rights that he normally would in any other prison? Right. And I think they um, and they got in a little bit into a current events, right? Like, hey, we just withdrew from Afghanistan. We're done there. Uh, mm-hmm. Is the AUMF the authorization for uh, military force? Uh, is that still is that still good? Does that still mean that we have enemy combatants? Meaning that the whole point of Guantanamo Bay is that even like real right now? Like, there's an appeal about that. It's going through. <laughs> Yep. But yeah, at this time, gonna, they we, we're still allowed to use Guantanamo. <laughs> okay. Because yes, because Al Qaeda's not completely gone, so that's still in effect. So yeah, there's no way this 
there's no way Zubeda is getting out anytime soon. It's just a matter of whether they can get the information they want. And I'm, I think like we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of deference to what the government says their classification rating is. And to get over that requires, to get over that hurdle, it's going to require a strong showing of necessity. I don't know if that's the exact articulable standard, but that's what the justices seem to be getting at. And I don't think they saw it here. Well, I, I don't, they didn't even get into the standard of what's required. They all seemed extraordinarily confused at why Zubeda even needed more information. Right. It's like everything at this point is pretty much public knowledge. You can keep saying that you can't talk about Poland as the location, but everyone knows at this point that he was in Poland. Like, that's just common knowledge. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the if you just look at on paper, the question before the court, giving deference to the federal government and making this type of decision, I think the court is going to side with the government, even though the argument's not good and even though they're not happy about the situation. Right. The question at hand is, yes, the, the federal you know, government is owed deference in making these decisions because they have this information and we don't. Yeah, yep. That's what I, I don't know who's going to vote which way, but... I, I see the court going exactly what you just said. Yeah, I don't think it'll be unanimous. I think that we will have a couple of stragglers that I, I can totally see a Breyer opinion coming out and getting a little bit uh, diverted into the Guantanamo issue and just sort of opining on how terrible it is that we even are in this situation and that this guy's been there for 14 years and just, you know, and like Gorsuch said, like, the government are you saying you never considered letting him just testify in order to make this go away you've made it you've been arguing this all the way up to the supreme court and it just never occurred to you that a way around this whole privileged thing is just to let the guy say what he wants to say and then it's done i don't think so (laughs) so it might be a remand with instructions to have zubeda testify right but i don't even think that they'll go that far i don't think that they're gonna overstep you know their authority i don't think it's their duty to say Mm -hmm. here's what you should do it's just look this is a question before us we think the whole situation is awful and seems unnecessary but that's not our place we're just here to say that the supreme the appellate court was wrong in overruling the federal government's decision right yeah but we'll see that one was uh like I said earlier, it was tough to listen to until the like last five minutes. Yeah, the last five minutes were very interesting. I mean, I liked all of it because they were all so confused about what information was missing that I was intrigued, but the ending was a complete turn of events I didn't expect. Oh, the Supreme Court. <laughs> all right. All That's right. all I had to say about Zub- Zooby-Doo. Yeah, me too. Um, Where yeah. were you on between September and uh, December of 2000? 12 and September of 2013 I don't know uh oh neither does he I was I was in London was it 2012 and 13 or was it 2002 and 3 me 2012 and 13 him no 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 I'm I'm talking about (laughs) Zabeda yeah um he's been held in Guantanamo Bay since 2006 
So I'm guessing it was. Oh, so it was two. He was in Poland in, from. Where where was he between December of 2002 and September of 2003? Right. That's when they're alleging that he's he was at the Poland dark site. Yeah. Where he was waterboarded more than 800, uh, 80 times. Yes. Which is, you were not in London at that time. No. That's all I got to say about Zabeda. Same. All right. Well, in that case, we'll see you next time for a couple more cases. Um, probably two arguments to review that time because they're not releasing there's not new opinions coming out because it's the beginning of the session but uh, I'm sure actually Boston Bomber is coming up yes that is coming up so in October yep I think it's next week I don't know days anymore but it is coming up soon so we will definitely be listening to that argument and we will keep everyone informed of what goes on there that's right all right Well, in that case, talk to you next time. I want apple fritters. When do you not want apple fritters? That's a good point. Bye.